You're listening to Fertile Minds Radio, and I'm your host, Hilary Rowland. Fertile Minds Radio is your place to learn how to maximize your fertility as well as your partner's. We cover the physical, emotional, and spiritual aspects of a fertility journey. You'll find tools to help you feel empowered and confident as you move from infertility to pregnancy to parenthood. If you're looking for holistic wisdom and a plan to help you reclaim your wellness, to help you create a healthy family for generations to come, you're in the right place. This is Fertile Minds Radio. So today on the show, we have Ricardo Miranda. He is the CEO and NTHFR consultant for NTHFRdoctors.com. He is the leading clinician and one of the top researchers in the field of NTHFR genetic mutation. With over 28 years of clinical experience, he is able to assess the direct link between his patients' genetic mutations and their health issues. He developed a unique approach to combining functional medicine, genetics, epigenetics, traditional Chinese medicine, nutrition, and integrative medicine diagnostics. He has done extensive research in the MTHFR area, and with the understanding of multiple disciplines, he has coached doctors from all over the country on how to treat patients with specific mutation and methylation issue, including mitochondrial dysfunction. He believes that educating and empowering people to take control of their own health is one of the most important gifts that he can give to his patients. And I could not agree more. So thank you so much for coming to the show, Ricardo. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate you being willing to share all of your wisdom with our audience because I think that this is so important, not just for falling pregnant, but for the, the health of the families for generations to come. And I think a lot of people don't realize how much power they have in their actual genetics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So can you explain to our audience, because I think some will know what MTHFR gene mutations are, and some are, have no idea what I'm talking about. So can you explain to them what they are, how they might affect fertility and pregnancy, um, and really the health of their family? Sure. Uh, so MTHFR is a gene that controls how the body breaks down folate or folic acid. MTHFR stands for methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. Big word, so we usually use the acronym MTHFR. When I say break down folate or folic acid, a lot of times people use these names interchangeably, but mm -hmm. folate and folic acid are two very different things. Yes. Uh, biochemically speaking, folate we get from food, leafy greens, broccoli, spinach, whatever we break down the body utilize, whatever we don't break down gets expelled through our body naturally. And folic acid is a synthetic form of folate. Mm -hmm. Whatever we break down, we'll utilize, but what we do not break down in folic acid becomes toxicity, becomes what I call endogenous toxins, and it gets stored in the space outside of the cell called extracellular matrix. And then the body needs to detoxify. Oh, okay. Synthetic folic acid, the extra is actually making you potentially sicker. Exactly. And haven't we added that to all of our processed foods in the name of trying to stop neural tube defects? Yes. What happened was back then when they started fortifying foods with folic acid, it was in early 1990s. Mm -hmm. And their focus was on preventing birth defects because they had discovered that pregnant women with low folate levels 
could give birth to babies with birth defect. So they decided to implement this fortification of folate. And what the industry decided to do is they made folic acid. You know, it's a, it's a synthetic form, it's the cheapest form, but it does work in raising the folate levels because even if you don't metabolize, you metabolize partial, and it will work on what they were focusing on, which is preventing the low folates. Now, let's keep in mind, the problem was a low levels of folate and not low levels of folic acid to begin with. Folic acid is a synthetic form of folate. But because you're, you're taking a larger quantity of folic acid, even if you're not able to metabolize all of it, you metabolize some of it, and, and that amount is enough to prevent birth defect. But back in the early 90s, they were not paying attention on the MTHFR gene. That's something relatively new. 80% of the population, they have a mutation on this gene. The gene you know, controls how the body breaks down folate and folic acid. 80% of the population have at least one mutation on the genes. So if you have a mutation, you can lose 20% of your ability to break down folic acid, you can lose 40%, you can lose 60%, or you can have the worst mutation and lose 70% of your ability to break down that folate or that folic acid. And 7% is a lot. Mm -hmm which the worst mutation we call the homozygous mutation on the MTHFR C677T, which is a double mutation on a position, or the most important position on the MTHFR. So what happens is if you have this mutation, which is the worst mutation, you're only going to absorb 30% of what you're taking. So that 70% that you're not metabolizing, you're not utilizing, becomes toxicity. Now your body has to detoxify that. And that becomes a problem, especially for pregnant women. Now that will affect the baby because when you talk about fertility and pregnancy, every woman you know, that want to get pregnant, they don't just want to get pregnant. They want a healthy baby, mm -hmm. right? So yes. we can't talk about fertility without talking about a healthy pregnancy. So the importance of this, going back to what happened in 1990s and now, if you look at the Centers for Disease Control website, for example, in 1987, the occurrence rate for autism was 1 in 10,000 kids. Now, if you go to the Centers for Disease Control website in 2018, the occurrence rate is 1 in 44 children. Yeah, it just keeps getting lower and lower. It, it's insane. It's mm -hmm. insane. And as they fortify the foods with folic acid, but also they start giving prenatal vitamins containing folic acid, and that's even worse because then they get a much larger amount of folic acid. The occurrence rate start going up at the same time that this recommendation started in our country. We're giving folic acid, not only in foods, but on all the prenatal vitamins. And there's a big correlation because autism is a development, is a problem with the brain development of the baby in utero. If you have more toxicity, that can affect the development of the baby. It also, it depends on how healthy the person is. It depends on, on the environment, how much toxicity they get. So it's a compound factor, but it's one of the important factors. You know, I started to read about this probably about seven, eight years ago. And I think at that point, I was sort of understanding that there was like a 
of the population had it. And maybe that was a wrong figure, but now I heard you in another episode say that there was like 80%. So if it's a mutation, why does most of the population have it? Yes. So let me address that. I believe the numbers you had back then were not correct. Okay. Because for the past eight to 10 years, it's been about 80% of the population. So the number is much higher. With that said, let me address the other question that you had about if there's a mutation, why that's changing. Well, I do not have the data from 100 years ago because we didn't have that. But I do believe that long time ago, we probably had a lower percentage just because you get your genes from your parents. And if nobody has a mutation, you're not going to have a mutation. But if one of your parents or, or both, they have a mutation, there's a bigger chance of you getting a mutation. Or if they have a double mutation and then it's automatically, you're going to get at least one mutation. So as you know, people are marrying each other and marrying people with mutation and there are more chances of children having the mutation. So I believe that it, you know, 100 years from now, there's probably a bigger percentage that will have with MTHFR mutation just because of uh, the intermarriage between people with different MTHFR status. Does it make sense? Yeah. So you don't think that the mutation then is like a maladaptation to our environment and all the toxicity? Because I, I don't really understand genetically why the body would be like losing its ability to detoxify itself. Got it. Let me explain. Right. Uh, the mutation is not a result of the environment, but the mutation, the MTHFR mutation affects how our body detoxify. So the environment will have a bigger impact on people that have a mutation. Why? Because the MTHFR mutation affects a process called methylation. And methylation controls intracellular detoxification. Methylation controls how we're able to detoxify. So if you have a mutation, there's a big chance that you're not methylating well, therefore you're not detoxing, you're not, you're not detoxifying well. Mm-hmm. Okay? So the people, people with MTH fermentation, they have a greater chance of having their ability to detoxify diminished. Therefore, the environment has a bigger impact on them. Okay. Does it make sense? Yes, that makes sense. Uh- so, Thank you. So, and there's, how many genes are there that affect MTHFR? Well, there are many MTHFR alleles or oppositions, but the two most important that will affect methylation are two, MTHFR C677T and MTHFR A1298C. Those are the two that we look at. Okay. And if you're looking at old literature, didn't they rename those at some point too? Am I remembering that correctly? Like the um, originally? They, they they may use different numbers that are SID numbers. There's that they, they may call the genes by just different numbers, but these are the names that we have been 
using. And I think we've always used that, but it just depends on how you read. If you just go into the technical part, the, the computer uh, coding part, they're going to use just different numbers. Okay. But these are the names of the alleles. Okay. And so when someone's not detoxifying correctly, does that cause other genes that they have for other diseases to trigger on and off? Yeah, that's a great question. So most genetic related health conditions are controlled by multiple genes. Mm -hmm. There are a few that have like single genes that will affect like sickle cell anemia. You have that one gene, that's it. You have the BRCA genes for the breast cancer. You got that mutation, that's it. It's that one gene. But most health conditions are controlled by multiple genes. So having one mutation is not enough to set off the health condition. Usually you need to have multiple mutations on various genes that affect that health condition. And what we have found out is we have the ability, our body has the ability to regulate the gene expression. And the process that does that is methylation. So methylation controls the expression of the genes. The methylation has the ability to turn off those genes. So basically methylation is in charge of epigenetics. Is that my understanding? Methylation is in charge of turning on and off the expression of the genes that we have. Okay. Epigenetics, it's a term referred to outside of genetics. Everything out of genetics, like the environment, lifestyle and environment will affect outside of, of the genetics. Okay. And whether you're going to express the gene or not is controlled by methylation. So, for example, they've done a study with mice, and all the mice had the gene for diabetes. So they separated half the mice, and they did nothing, just fed them regular food and left them alone. And the other half, they supported the methylation on the mice. So the result was all the mice that they didn't interfere, they the gene for diabetes got expressed because they had the gene. And, but the mice that they control methylation, the gene never got expressed. So the mice never had developed diabetes. So essentially it, you, were, you were supplementing the building blocks that they needed in order to continue to detoxify, which then didn't trigger the gene to express itself. Is that correct? And okay. In addition to that, they implemented, for example, regular exercise on the mice because by research now has shown that exercise supports methylation and influence methylation. So we all know exercise is good, good for our health, but we can show with evidence why exercise is good for health because exercise increases methylation function. And you can actually suppress the bad genes, per se. Sweating is another way to detoxify, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So, so this is just one of the research studies that show how we can control the expression of genes and control our destiny. Because our DNA is not our destiny. We can actually control the expression. 
Yeah, I think people will look at their genes now that we have access to the information and sort of think that it's like a death sentence. But really, am I correct in thinking that your genes are only about 15% of the equation? And then what we do and, you know, internally what we put in our bodies and then what we're exposed to. And then I think maybe how we think also has like this compounding effect on, on our genes expression, right? You're, you're absolutely correct. Because what we do with our lifestyle and how we handle the environment, how we support our methylation, for example, we can control, it's 85%. We can control the expression of the genes. What, what we're essentially doing with a healthy diet and lifestyle, we're supporting this process called methylation that silenced those genes. So I'm just curious now that, you know, the Human Genome Project that came up, you know, not too long ago, if you look at history, but we, and yeah. we have this kind of budding database of information and we have all this research. I mean, I looked through a ton of the research on your website, which is just phenomenal how much is listed there. But why don't doctors understand this? Like, why aren't they screening for it and then giving the right building blocks so that there is better genetic expression? Because, I mean, I've even seen OBs give folic acid with folate and I'm like scratching my head going, why are you doing that? <laughs> well, they, uh, they don't learn that in school. Actually, there's no no training. I'm trained in Chinese medicine, yeah. as you are. And, and, and if I may say, just on a side note, Chinese medicine and acupuncture is a phenomenal tool for fertility. It's unbelievable. 30 years ago, when I started practicing, nobody would refer patients for fertility for acupuncture because they didn't know. My, there's so much research now that shows how acupuncture is effective in fertility. So just wanted to mention that out that, you know, people really need to search for, you know, Chinese medicine practitioner and acupuncture. But that's a phenomenal tool. 100% agree. Like it's super helpful for natural conception because it does have this way of like resetting all the systems in your body. And I happen to believe it has a little bit of implication on your genetic expression as well. But even if you're going through IVF, you know, many of those studies show that acupuncture helps your outcomes. Absolutely. Here in Los Angeles, at least virtually all fertility clinics, they send their patients for acupuncture before and after the, the IVF procedure. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, amazing. Uh, but there was a question. I got sidetracked and I forgot what you asked me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was asking like why more doctors aren't informed of this. And yes. Because they're not taught, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we didn't learn this in Chinese medicine school. Uh, MDs don't learn that on medical school. Naturopaths, don't, they don't learn that. Chiropractors don't learn. Nobody learns that in their training. I had to go out of my way and research and study and go through the research. And the scientists, they are doing the research study. They don't see patients. They're not clinicians. They're just doing something. So we have to go out and research this stuff and bring it into how is this applicable in real life? And that's, I mean, that's my passion. That's what I do. But on defense of the doctor, they are just too busy helping their patient. They don't have time to research other things. A lot of times, a lot of their medication, they, they give, we get a, a rap that comes in their office, get a new medication and they're like, oh, okay. And then they research some of the medication because it got presented to them. But I think they're just busy helping people and, and doing a wonderful job that they do with their specialty, but they don't have the time to go out and start researching things. But I have to say that for all the doctors that I have shared, 
about MTHFR and explain, they were all very open and very happy to learn that. And everybody that I have talked to, they switched. They're like, oh, yes, that makes sense. When you present the evidence, and then because the doctors, they want to help patients. Right. We ask so much of them, right? We ask them to be educators, healers, and pharmacists, yes. right? So I, yeah. I do love that you're, you're teaching doctors, but it just sounds like maybe our education hasn't caught up to the how fast the research is going. Maybe. Yes, and that's the truth. The, the, I think the fault here is not the doctor, but it's the system. Because mm-hmm. all the doctors, they're doing a wonderful job. They're, they're trying to help. They, I mean, they do such an amazing job, but they're not learning that in school. We have a, a, a bigger problem on our system that a lot of schools are funded by the pharmaceutical industry. So there's a lot of that. There's not much money in it. Because the solution in this case is to get a nutrient that you can get on any health food store. So there's no really, not really money for the pharmaceuticals here. Because right. patients can go out and buy a methylated folate and then a practitioner like yourself, they can tell them how much to take and so forth, but they can have access anywhere. So pharmaceuticals are not making money. And that's part of the problem that they don't care, unfortunately, about spreading the word and teaching this because there's no money for them. We don't really have a healthcare system in the U.S. We have more of a sick system, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so we have to do our job and educate the patients and educate other healthcare practitioners to give what is the best for the patient. Yes. So you mentioned autism is one of the things that could potentially occur because of the buildup of detoxification. Yes. You know, for me, when I first started looking at it, I was looking at it in relation to clotting disorders and recurrent mm-hmm. pregnancy loss, whether that was just like something severe like antiphospholipids or, you know, just a mild clotting disorder. What else? What are the other big implications that we can look at? I mean, yes, loss is really big and so is autism. But there's a ton of other cascade effects that can happen. There's a ton of others. And clotting disorder, yes, that is a concern. Another concern, for example, is a thyroid hormone. The thyroid hormone, we have receptors all over the body for thyroid hormone. And thyroid hormone is activated in the nucleus of the cells, in the DNA. And it needs methylation oh. to activate thyroid hormone. Okay, it's actually in methylation, transformation, acetylation. So methylation is the main biochemical process responsible for activating thyroid hormone. So people don't realize that. And thyroid is directly related to pregnancy health. You want to make sure your TSH is low. You want to make sure you have enough thyroid hormone. But you also need to make sure that the thyroid hormone is being activated. Right. right? If you have enough, but it's not activating, you may have a problem with pregnancy. So... If methylation is working, we know that thyroid hormone is being activated. And you still have to look at the markers. Well, yeah, and that's such a that's another place where I think the research hasn't caught up, right? Because you still mm-hmm. see on labs that a normal TSH is up to four, but for pregnancy and fertility, it should be at least a 2.5 if under, if not a 2. It should be it should be much lower because they want to make sure you have enough. But that's what I say. You want to have enough, but you want to make sure that the hormones are being activated as well. Right. So I think methylation plays a part in that as well. It's not the whole, it, it, I always tell uh, people, methylation is almost always a part of the problem, but almost never the only problem. There's, yeah. there's always other factors as well. So it's not that methylation is the cause for everything. No, not at all. But 
uh, it's an important piece of the puzzle. So yeah, because we, it's so far upstream, it can have an effect on many other things, right? Exactly, exactly. So it, it's always a good point to take a look and make sure that you're methylating well, and then you look at everything else at the same time. Okay. So my other question about that is that a lot of times I've heard the argument from people, well, if B vitamins are water-soluble, then I'll just take a ton of methyl folate and I'll be fine. But isn't there such a thing as methyl excitement if you if you don't really need that much and you end up with too many methyl donors? Where you yes, you're absolutely right. Your symptoms? Yeah, we call it uh, overmethylation. I mean, with everything in life, there's too little and too much, right? right? <laughs> yes. You know, the, the difference between medicine and poison is the dosage. That's a very good way to put it, yes. <laughs> so, yes. And most of the time we're concerned with people not methylating well, not having enough folate. But too much folate will cause overmethylation and will cause also other problems. So there needs to be a balance. And that is why it's important to get tested for MTHFR. Know if you have a mutation, and if you do, which mutation you have and how much you're losing on your ability to metabolize the folate to find out how much you need to take. Can you just briefly kind of run through the how much you would be losing based on the different mutations? Yes. Okay. Um, so if you have no mutation, you don't lose your ability. You have almost 100% of your ability to break down. If you have one mutation on the MTHFR A1298C, we call it a heterozygous mutation, one mutation. Mm -hmm. You lose 20, roughly 20% 20 on your ability to metabolize folate. Now, if you have a double mutation on the A1298C position, we call the homozygous mutation on that position, you lose roughly 40%. Okay? okay? Now, if you have a single mutation on the other position, the other allele called the C677T MTHFR, you lose also roughly 40% of your ability to metabolize fully. Now, if you have one mutation on each of these alleles, we call, so if you have a hetero, heterozygous mutation on each, so we call that a compound heterozygous mutation because you got two heterozygous mutations, two single mutations, but you have two. So you lose roughly 60% of your ability to break down the folate. And if you have a double mutation, on the MTHFR C677T, you lose roughly 70% of your ability to metabolize fully. Now, mathematically or statistically, we could also have three mutations or even four mutations, okay? Because you've got two positions. However, if you have that, the, the fetus is not viable anymore because you lose so much of your ability to break down folate, and folate is such an important nutrient. We cannot live without. If you lose more than 70%, you can't live. So the baby does not survive. This is how important this is. You just, just imagine, if you have a bigger mutation of that, the body dies. So that shows the importance of looking at MTHFR and, and properly addressing it. You know, we do the MTHFR testing. We've been doing it for years. I've talked to different labs and nobody 
has ever had a patient that had either three mutations or four because the fetus does not survive. And there is now research showing that. That's something that I have always knew it was true. And now the research showing that the baby does not survive. So it's so important. That's an important point of how important it is, right? Exactly. And we're not exactly doing a ton of genetic screening in fertility until you get to a point of IVF, which is like we've already gone through so much mm-hmm. um, at that point. And then they're just looking at the, the the embryo health. They're not necessarily always looking at both parents. I mean, sometimes they're doing some, some genetic carrier screening, but I think for most clinics, at least here in Florida, it's still very optional. So if it were me, I would, I would want to know, but there's also like much more simple ways of doing it. So like you have a buccal swab test, which I, I think a lot of people don't realize you can just swab your cheek, right? With saliva. So, yeah, skin. it's so easy, easy. non-invasive. You do it from home. That's why we created that because people were having hard time finding a place to get tested. And we developed the home test kit that you do through your cheek swab, non-invasive, no blood. I hate giving blood myself. <laughs> so uh, it, it's, it's so easy for everyone, yes. We ship the kids all over the world. So can you also, if somebody's already done a genetic screening, like a 23andMe or an Ancestry or say something from Genova, a functional lab company, can they get with you and go over their results? Like, Or do they have to repeat the screening? Uh, some of these companies, if they already have decoded mm-hmm. the, and have the information there, then they already have it. But if they have not, we have our site, mtheatre4doctors.com. We have a software that decodes raw data from ancestry.com to mtheatre.me, all this company. So all they do is they upload the raw data, mm-hmm. and then we have different reports. We can decode anything from the raw data. So we got the mtheatre4. We have a methylation report that gives the mtheatre4 information there. We have a fertility report that gives all the genes on that. We've got the BRCA gene report right in there. We got the report is the health conditions agenda that shows all the genes related to health conditions that you may have a mutation for. And then you can take a proactive approach on prevention. For example, let's say that you see on your report that you have quite a few genes for glaucoma, for example. I do. That's a good guess. <laughs> <Sadly>. <laughs> So now, I mean, most people don't go to an ophthalmologist unless they have an issue with their eyes, right? You just don't. Some people go to the entire life, they don't. But if you know that you have the multiple genes, and remember, uh, most health conditions are controlled by multiple genes, not only one. And we have the ability to control the gene expression. So if you have that, you say, oh, now you can be proactive. Even though you have no issues with your eyes now, you can start making the first visit to an ophthalmologist, check everything, have a baseline, mm-hmm. and then come back every, you know, so many years, depending on, on the patient's age and how their eyes are, maybe three years, maybe five years, and have a proactive and start taking things that will benefit the health of the eyes and regulate your methylation. So you can do a lot of things preventively for that health condition that you have limitations for. And... Make sure that the methylation is working well to silence the genes and make sure that your lifestyle and you're taking everything that supports the function of that part of your body. 
So do you think that however many mutations someone has can contribute to the increase in autoimmunity that we're seeing in women because of their inability to detoxify and not burdening the immune system? Like yes, so yes, absolutely. That's part of the problem. Also, autoimmune is directly related to gut health and inflammation, like leaky gut can lead to autoimmunity. Right. So gut health is incredibly important and inflammation is, is also you know handling inflammation is very important and if you, you know because of the gut brain axis we call the burning brain connection you get inflammation in the gut immediately inflammation in the brain as well so autoimmune uh, there's research showing that at least 50 percent of people that have an autoimmune condition they develop a secondary autoimmune condition mm -hmm. yeah i mean i just noticed younger and younger women showing up in my office that either have a positive diagnosis or they're very, they're presenting like it and they're just sort of on the cusp. And I was, you know, thinking like, oh, I wonder if this is not only a gut issue, but a methylation issue as well. And it's just this kind of toxic buildup that's happening to cause a lot of those symptoms. Yeah. So I always recommend looking into those two areas, gut and methylation. Those are the two major areas in the body to begin with. So talk to me about homocysteine markers, because I know some doctors will say, well, if your homocysteine is fine, then you're methylating properly, but that's not the case, right? Correct. If your homocysteine is high, and then you know you're not methylating well. But if your homocysteine is normal, it does not guarantee you're methylating well, because you can have a false normal. Mm -hmm. Okay, So your MTHFR gene, if you have a mutation, it slows down the enzyme. So you're not breaking down homocysteine as much. So your homocysteine can get high. Another gene, for example, the CBS gene, which is the cystathione beta synthase gene, that gene breaks down homocysteine as well in a different way than MTHFR. But if you have a mutation on that gene, instead of slowing down the enzyme, it speeds up the enzyme. Oh. Yeah, so what happens is you can look at a homocysteine and look normal, but you have a MTHFR mutation, so you're not methylating well, you're not producing enough folate to transform homocysteine into methionine, but the CDS gene is also mutated and they are over-transforming homocysteine into cystathionine, which is another transformation pathway. So the homocysteine will look normal, but you're not methylating well. So, so that's why you cannot rely on homocysteine as the sole markers. If it's look normal and then you have to look at folate. Folate is the marker for methylation, but there's no way you can see through through the blood the folate only if the methylation is working, because when you measure folate, you're measuring all types of folate, including a metabolized folic acid. You're, you're measuring everything. Okay. Okay, so when you read the, the folate levels there, let's say 10 on the blood results, uh, it doesn't mean your body's utilizing all that folate. It depends. If you do not have any mutation, yes, your body is breaking that down and utilizing it. But what if you have the worst mutation, the double mutation, which I call the homozygous mutation on MTHFR, C677, you have the worst one. You're losing roughly 70% of your ability to break down the folate. So you could potentially, instead of having that 10 on the blood work, you could be as low as three. In reality, you'd be a little above three. You could be three and a half, four, because measuring all types of folate. But you'd be much lower. You're not gonna. You're not gonna have enough folate. 
And it's sounds so important to, to be able to calculate that per person because then you're giving the person what they need to detoxify. And I see so many women when they're trying to get pregnant, they go through these like rigorous detoxes where they're putting all these purgatives into their body and they're, you know, like living on juice and they're just because they're desperate to do anything. But if they don't have the, the folate to break down everything. Exactly. And then you, you're doing all the detox. But if your body's ability to detoxify is not working, that is not going to work. Your body can be depleted. It can be tired. Because the, the system that detoxifies not works. So you need to make sure that the system is ready. And then you do all the detox and then it works. Yes. I, I think that's a really important point. So when somebody comes to see you, do you, when you go through all of their genetic screening and their lab values, do you then like make a personal prenatal for them? Like based on the amounts that they need? Like how, how do they, or do you just tell them the amounts? And oh, Yeah, luckily there are many companies, good companies, good brands that have good prenatals out there. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is to coach a patient on how much to take and make sure that they're they are taking the right form of folate, which basically do not take folic acid. Mm -hmm. You know, look, raw folate, folate from natural sources is safe because it's from food. But it's still not the best because you're not going to break down all the folate. Okay? It's safe, but it's not. The best is the methylated folate, which is already broken down to the form that the body uses. And the two uh, kinds that you're look, looking for will be the L5 MTHF or the L5 or the 6S. Uh, those are the good, good forms of folate, the best ones. So... You coach the, the patient to take the right and the right amount, depending on their mutation. And then you look at the mutation, look at the blood work, do the calculation, and then help them. And people process their imperfections differently. For example, if you look at stress, you can have two people work in the same department under the same type of stress and similar lifestyle stress, and then they process that stress differently because their body functions differently. Uh, same thing, you may have a mutation, two people with the same mutation on MTHFR, but depending on how your health is, how your health was in your entire life that led to here, how your gut is functioning, how's your lifestyle, you may handle your mutation better than somebody else. Just because you have the same mutation, it doesn't mean you need to take the exact same amount. So we have a baseline, have an idea, and if you have a double mutation, you're going to have probably take more than if you have a single mutation, that's for sure. But still, we need to look at that person. We have to have an individualized approach because somebody else with the same mutation may have other issues. They may need more. And that goes with everything, including the MTHFR issue. Well, yeah, you're spoken like a true acupuncturist, right? We're always looking at <laughs> an individual in front of us, not, not a protocol yes. or a set amount. And I think that that is sometimes difficult for Westerners to grasp that we are so unique and that that should be taken into consideration. Yes. And everyone wants that, that little form. I have this, everybody's going to take the same thing, but our body's unique. So we need to celebrate that. It's a good thing. And we can have a, a somewhat baseline, but everyone is unique and, and you need that individualized approach to get the best results, yes.
So as far as the mutations go, I think the easy way to remember it and the take home message is that A's are better than C's in terms of how much that you're losing. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Just if you're listening, right, and you're you're getting dyslexic over all those numbers and letters, A's are better than C's. One is better than two. And then certainly if you have a moderate to a severe set of mutations, then we would definitely want to seek help and make sure that we're getting the right amount and looking at everything. And then my question for that is if we know both partners, like we want to test both partners and see what each of us has in terms of mutation, Yes. And then you have a baby. Would you test the baby so that you knew how much folate to give them throughout their life to remain healthy? Absolutely. And I have been seeing a lot in our lab. Uh, a lot of people are testing more and more the babies. We see when we receive the specimens and, and the data that we're testing babies. We're testing, you know, four months old, five months old, one year. And that's wonderful that people are testing. They want to know because once you know, your DNA is not going to change. But you know what to do for the rest of your life. And it is true when you're, if you're planning to get pregnant, to test both. So you can have an idea of the possibilities that the baby could have. We don't know exactly, but at least we can have an idea of what the baby could have. And then when the person is pregnant, same thing. If you know uh, both, the father and mother, you have the possibilities, you know what to take to support the methylation of the mother, you, you have a better idea. Yes, and uh, for the first, you know, maybe a couple of years if you're breastfeeding, so the mother will be taking the folate for the baby. Right, yes. so yeah, very important to continue to take that while you're breastfeeding your prenatals. Yes, because they're getting all the nutrients from you. Yes. Yeah. And then I have to ask, because I feel like it's such a hot topic, especially in women's health these days, um, and it's one of the things that I kind of get a raised eyebrow when I ask if somebody's down in 23 Me, what about privacy with the tests that you guys offer? Oh, yes, it's 100% confidential. We don't share or sell any of the information. As a matter of fact, we have people that are really concerned about privacy. And I tell them, you can just write John Doe and make up a date of birth. The only thing is you should know if you're if you have the whole family. And you can write down person one, person two. It doesn't matter. The only thing you should know which one is which. Who's who, yes. <laughs> so who's who, you know, because that's the only thing. But the data never goes anywhere. That's 100% secure. Data never goes anywhere. We don't sell, share, nothing. So it's, it's totally fine. Uh, I, You know, we've had people that are concerned. Oh, what do you do with this person? Uh, it's DNA that gets discarded according to CLIA protocols and all that. But DNA is everywhere. You go to have a haircut, they have your DNA on your hair. Everywhere you go. So they don't need to be overly concerned about this specimen because if anybody wanted to get your DNA, they could. But that gets discarded according to protocol. Bait is never shared, so it's 100% secure, yes. I leave a trail of my DNA wherever I go. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, well, you know, I appreciate that because I, I didn't ask you that question before when we were speaking, so I, I appreciate the off-the-cuff answer and complete transparency with that. I think that that's really more so important in our, in our current landscape of health, especially as data is becoming this commodity, basically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I understand. No, but this will always be like that because I think privacy and confidentiality is very important. So, 
that's something that will never change with us. Okay. So if someone is very curious and wants to work with you, if they haven't fallen pregnant yet, what would you say is the amount of lead time that they would need to get with you, get a test, start supplementing, and then bring levels into a normal place? Yeah, that's a good question. The moment they decided they want to get pregnant, they should look into their health. Ideally, at least three to six months, get your body as healthy as possible. Keep in mind, depending on the cells in your body, it may take 60, 90 days to be renewed, but like organ cells, like liver cells, sometimes take nine months to be renewed. So if you really want to be optimal, you would you'd get your body and get for the past year, and then you get yourself in perfect health. But that's not usually the case. You know, usually people don't have that much lead time. So I say good three to six months if you can. Unfortunately, I have people that say, okay, they want to get pregnant and they're going to stop smoking and drinking a week before they get pregnant. <laughs> That's not ideal. It takes time to get your body to change. And there's something as far as DNA is concerned that's called the genetic tag. It's not a mutation that you were born with, but it's a mutation that is created in your life based on your lifestyle and environment. For example, if you were born, and let's say you have no genes for lung cancer, but you start smoking every day, so after a period of time, there's something that start developing in your body, which is called the genetic tag that is created because of the epigenetics, because of your lifestyle that modifies some of your genes. And then you develop genes for lung cancer, okay? Because of your smoking. Now, if you get pregnant, after you have developed those genetic tags, the baby will be born with the genetic tags. So the baby will be born with the predisposition for lung cancer, okay? Yeah. So that can be passed on to other generation. They need to, to be aware. And that's why I say, we need to make the change and start cleaning our system before you get pregnant. Because, and that for men and women, because yeah. the man will change the cells and will change the DNA that goes into the sperm. So it's the same thing. So ideally, if you know your lifestyle, you know you're not healthy in a certain area, start getting healthy. That would be ideal. Now, the good news is the genetic tags can be reversed. The DNA that you were born that are not genetic tags cannot be changed, but the genetic can be cleaned, Okay. So that's the good news. But with that said, it's always better to take care of your body before you give your baby that genetic tag. Right. I think a lot of people don't understand that you know sperm production is 72 days on average, maybe closer, a little bit more than that. So men have like the three-month window to make clean sperm. Women have that 120 days of follicular genesis of the egg. But I'm with you. Like, I, I feel like a year of how you're eating, especially if you've developed those tags, could be the best money and time that you ever spent in towards of the health, not just of your next child, but of their children, right? Exactly. Two generations at a time, right? Especially yes. if you're about diabetes and cancer. And I think a lot of people don't quite realize how much power that they have <laughs> to do that. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a good power to have. Yes. You know, it's a good power to have. So, this. okay. Well, 
I don't think that the sages of Chinese medicine ever thought that we were going to be inundated by this many chemicals. Right? That's <laughs> right. We're going to do to food. Um, but I do love that it's not taking away something so much in the body is, is that we're talking about fortifying a body with the building blocks that it needs in order to detox itself because all life has to detox itself, as you pointed out. Like if it, if it can't, then we fail to exist. So I think for a lot of people just making the mind switch that they're not abstaining from everything, but they're taking out the major things that could be causing issue and then finding out exactly how much their genetics need of the folate in order to properly detox from, you know, when they eat a slice of pizza or have an occasional glass of wine, right? Mm -hmm. Which is important. What? Yeah, the 80-20 rule, right? <laughs> yes. It's a you know, have a you know, a balance in your life. You need to enjoy, you need to do things that make you happy. So yeah, yes. we're not going for perfection or, or never having these things again, but really learning what your own capacity is to tolerate these things. Yes. And, and understanding that we're all a different shade in the crayon box, right? We we don't all come out the same color. Right. <laughs> Inside. <laughs> Uh, do you have any parting suggestions or words of wisdom for all of our soon-to-be or wanting-to-be parents out there that are listening? You know, don't panic. You have the power. You can make changes in your life with your lifestyle, how to handle the environment. Now you learn tools to handle methylation because that's the process that's going to help your body detoxify and regulate genetic pressure. So there's a lot we can do. So it's... Uh, it's good news that we have the power to make the changes to control our health and our destiny. Well, thank you so much for sharing all that you've learned and, and how much time and energy you've devoted to this, because I think it's really super important for humanity to understand just how much control that they do have in their health and their, their future family's health. So I greatly appreciate you. And if somebody wants to find you, what's the easiest way for them to do that? The website, mthfadoctors.com. Okay. They can send an email if they have a question or there are a lot of good information on the site. So, and they can order the, the home test kit there if you'd like. Yeah. Perfect. We'll make sure that we have all of those links on our show notes for sure. And I, I myself, I think I'm going to upload all my raw data and see, see what you have in store for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm super excited. Thank you so much, Ricardo. Thanks for inviting me. I had a great time chatting yeah. with you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's content and found it useful. This podcast is a labor of love from an entire team of people. We would love it if you shared the wisdom that you just banked or left a review on iTunes. Reviews help women just like you across the globe find this valuable information when it's their turn to conceive. We would consider it the ultimate compliment. Bye for now.